Okay, well, we're done with this um, time period. Okay, so we didn't really talk in detail about um, how the 10 northern tribes were carted off into um, captivity here in 722 by the Assyrians, but we've gone through all of the prophets here. We talked about it in a little bit when we went through Hosea. And remember God saying, how can I give you up? How can I let you go as they um, head off into captivity? Okay, so now we're, we're moving on into this next time period. We only have now the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so from 650 here, bad, wicked king Manasseh, at least for most of his life. And then we, we're moving down here into uh, 586 B.C., which was the last of the three uh, invasions of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Okay, and so we won't get to this until next year, but we'll get into Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, okay, who gave a message um, during this time. Okay, I put a little asterisk here because Nahum is really addressed to Nineveh again. Okay, it seems kind of interesting. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, um, the enemy. Okay, they get a prophet, Jonah, and now another one here, um, uh, Nahum. Okay, so um, the uh, Nineveh was uh, captured in 612 B.C. by the Assyrians. Okay, and so it, it fits somewhere in here. It could have been in rather broad uh, time frame, okay, maybe between 650 and, and 612 or so. <clears throat> All right, so Nahum opens this way. This is a message about Nineveh, the account of a vision seen by Nahum, who was from Elkosh. And again, 612 B.C., it's documented. I mean, this is extra biblical. It, it's known this one was when Nineveh was captured and the Assyrian nation was uh, destroyed. I just want to contrast again with uh, Jonah, okay, which was roughly 150 years earlier. Okay, Jonah came to Nineveh. Okay, remember God came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh, that great city, speak out against it. I'm aware how wicked its people are. And at that time, we talked about how wicked the Assyrians were, known as just one of the cruelest nations ever. Okay, but they responded to the message of Jonah. Now we come back roughly 150 years later, and uh, they didn't respond. Okay, remember what uh, made Jonah uh, so angry? Okay, he was furious, lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it when I was back home. I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, ready to, at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So God, if you won't kill them, kill me. I'm better off dead. So hated the Assyrians so much that it was really uh, you know, peeved that uh, God would, would give in and uh, would forgive uh, the Ninevites. Okay, so I think it's worthwhile, you know, um, we can make God as in our minds, interested in mainly one select group of people. But I think we have to see, just in our tour through the Old Testament so far, that God is interested in, in more than just his chosen people. Okay? He's interested in all the nations. Of course, the famous, most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world. Okay, now, that would, would that be everybody? Well, yeah, God loved the world that he came, gave his only son. Okay, just, just some verses here. I didn't mention this in Isaiah, but God would say, my heart cries out for Moab, another nation. I love this verse in Amos. When we went through Amos, I mentioned this. And just notice here God's involvement with other nations. The Lord says, people of Israel, I think as much of the people of Ethiopia as I do of you. I brought the Philistines from Crete and the Syrians from Kerr, just as I brought you from Egypt. Okay, so we don't imagine this very often, but God here we see actively involved 
in other nations, what's going on with other nations. In Isaiah 45, turn to me now and be saved, people all over the world. So again, God is, is I think, pulling out of the stops everywhere for everyone all the time. And when Jesus came, it's just interesting here, the people that he seemed to praise the most, the Roman officer, I've never found faith like this, not even in Israel. Okay, and the Canaanite woman, the heathen, you are a woman of great faith. So we have all these you know, examples of um, individuals outside the, the Jewish nation um, who, who um, God was interested in, and in many cases God was successful with. And just uh, one more little passage on this. You know, when Jesus got up to read the scroll early on in his ministry, it's just, it's just a very strange setting because he's up, he's reading the scroll, people are amazed, perhaps shocked is a, is a better translation of that. And uh, you just read on and you wonder, well, what happened? All of a sudden they're trying to throw him off a cliff. And it seems like, uh, what, what, what flipped the switch here? Well, I think there are a couple reasons, but one of them um, is clearly what Jesus said after reading the scroll from Isaiah. He said to them, listen to me, it is true that there were many widows in Israel during the time of Elijah, when there was no rain for three and a half years and a severe famine spread throughout the whole land. Yet Elijah was not sent to anyone in Israel, but only to a widow living in Zarephath, the territory of Sidon, a heathen. And there were many people suffering from dreaded skin disease who lived in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And when the people in the synagogue heard this, now what were they expecting of a Messiah? I mean, someone who's going to come to, you know, wipe out the heathens, the Romans. And here Jesus is giving these two examples from the Old Testament. And when the people in the synagogue heard this, they were filled with anger. They rose up, dragged Jesus out of town, and took him to the top of a hill, and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. Okay, so God in their mind, it was just exclusively interested in them. We are God's chosen people. And why are you talking about God being interested in people who aren't Jewish? Okay, so uh, turning to the book of uh, Nahum here, uh, we'll just read a few select passages. It's, it's pretty um, blunt, uh, as many of these books are, about uh, what's going to happen to these people. So Nahum 1, 7 and 8, The Lord is good. He protects his people in times of trouble. He takes care of those who turn to him. There aren't many little wonderful passages like this in Amos. So this was one that, uh, you know, you could make a bookmark out of this. Wonderful. But the rest of it is very forbidding, warning. But like a great rushing flood, he completely destroys his enemies. He sends to their death those who oppose him. And um, this won't be our topic for today. We've, uh, I think, gone over this throughout this year again and again and again, starting with 1 Samuel, that God is so often in the Old Testament described as doing what he allows to happen. Remember 1 Samuel, God slew Saul. Well, you just read the story. Saul fell on his sword. You know, God is sending evil spirits in Samuel um, all the time. Okay, but you know, God allowed. So I think, you know, we, I won't go into this, but I, I think we need to read Nahum in this light because, of course, what happened to the Ninevites? Okay, they were destroyed, but it was by an outside uh, force. It was the Medes and, and others that came in and destroyed uh, the kingdom of Assyria. And, and Nahum kind of uh, leaves room for that because it talks a lot about battle. Nineveh was besieged, conquered, and sacked by the allied forces of the Medes, and this is extra biblical. But here in Nineveh, too, the, the description of uh, enemies. Nineveh, you are under attack. 
The power that will shatter you has come. Prepare the defenses, guard the road, prepare for battle. The enemy soldiers carry red shields and wear uniforms of red. They are prepared to attack. Their chariots flash like fire, their horses prance. Chariots dash wildly through the streets, rushing back and forth in the city squares. They flash like torches and dart about like lightning. The officers are summoned. They stumble as they press forward. The attackers rush to the wall and set up the shield for the battering ram. Okay, so we have this description um, of destruction. I am your enemy, says the Lord. I will burn up your chariots. And again, who did that? Who was the Medes and, and other nations? Your soldiers will be killed in war, and I will take away everything that you took from others. The demands of your envoys will no longer be heard. The Lord Almighty says, I will punish you, Nineveh. I will strip you naked and let the nation see you, see you in all your shame. And so again, if we just contrast here, this would seem very definitive if you didn't know what happened in the book of Jonah. Jonah goes through the city and it just states it as a fact. In 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, it's not, uh, well, you know, if you guys repent, you won't be destroyed. It's just, no, you will be destroyed. Okay, but of course they repented. And uh, they weren't destroyed. But here in this case, uh, no, no repentance. And so we'll finish up here on the last two verses of Nahum, which I think is really uh, amazing the way this book finishes. The emperor of Assyria, your governors are dead, and your noblemen are asleep forever. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to bring them home again. There is no remedy for your injuries, and your wounds cannot be healed. Now what, what wounds are we talking about? here for the Assyrians. No remedy. Your wounds cannot be healed. All those who hear the news of your destruction clap their hands for joy. Did anyone escape your endless cruelty? Now this is certainly not talking about a physical wounds. Okay, so what does this refer to? Isn't this the worst diagnosis as a physician? You know, if you have a patient with a diffuse metastatic cancer and you have to say, you know, I, I can't heal you. There's, there's nothing I can do. Uh, to, to fix your condition. This is a, a terminal diagnosis. And this is the last verse of Nahum. There's no remedy. Your wounds can't be healed. And what I found very interesting is if we just go through this terminal diagnosis, we want to call it that, is listed again and again in the Old Testament just before every nation is destroyed or is taken off into captivity. Hosea, remember I just said, that's a book right before the uh, 10 northern tribes are taken off into captivity. And here we have God saying, I wanted to heal Israel, but its sins were far too great. Samaria, which is the capital of Israel, is filled with liars, thieves, and bandits, and God couldn't heal them. They went off to captivity. Same kind of uh, imagery here. Okay, so um, if we move forward now to Judah, okay, after the Assyrian captivity, uh, Second Chronicles is kind of the historical telling of this. Okay, and the last chapter of Chronicles, Second Chronicles, is 36, and it's kind of the bottom line. Okay, the Judah and Benjamin goes off into Babylonian captivity, and so our bottom line, again, diagnosis here, okay, the Lord God of their ancestors repeatedly sent messages through his messengers because he wanted to spare the people and his dwelling place, but they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and made fun of his prophets until the Lord became angry with his people. He could no longer heal them. Okay, once again, it's a, it's a terminal diagnosis. There's nothing I can do for you. 
I can't heal you. It's the same message here to Judah. And Jeremiah, which we'll talk about next year, is so much about this uh, healing. You know, is there no medicine in Gilead? Are there no doctors there? Why then am my people not being healed? Okay, and Jeremiah, again, talking about the nation of Judah as they go off into captivity. The Lord says to his people, your wounds are incurable. Your injuries cannot be healed. Okay, this, again, is, is talking about a, a spiritual uh, wound that can't be healed. There's no one to take care of you, no remedy for your sores, no hope of healing for you. And Jeremiah is the last of the prophets, of the three prophets here, uh, right before um, the Babylonian captivity. Again, a very, very end-time terminal diagnosis. Okay, we talked about God's interest in heathen nations. Uh, extends, of course, beyond Assyria to Babylon. So this is prophetic here in uh, Jeremiah, because, of course, Babylon was just becoming a big nation at that time. But Babylon will suddenly fall and be shattered. Cry for it. Bring medicine for its pain. Maybe it can be healed. We wanted to heal Babylon. It's interesting to think who's talking here. We wanted to heal Babylon but it couldn't be healed. Let's abandon it and go to our own land. God has judged Babylon. Its judgment is complete. Again, the, the worst thing that can be said about a people or a nation uh, by God is, I, I can't heal them. Egypt, uh, Jeremiah goes through a lot of these other nations. The nation of Egypt, who were um, destroyed around the same time here as uh, Assyria. People of e Egypt, go to Gilead and look for medicine. All your medicine has proved useless. Nothing can heal you. And then finally, the Jews in, in Jesus' time. I think we have the same uh, diagnosis here in Matthew 13. So the prophecy of Isaiah applies to them. The people will listen and listen, but not understand. They will look and look, but not see, because their minds are dull, and they have stopped up their ears and have closed their eyes. Otherwise, their eyes would see. And what I want to talk about is their eyes would see what? Their ears would hear. Hear what? Their minds would understand, and they would turn to me, says God, and I would heal them. Again, the, the desire uh, for God here for his people is um, to heal them. This fits well with what we talked about last time, God's refining fire, which is you know, to, to change our lives today on this earth. Okay, so what is this healing here that we'll talk, we're talking about? Um, <clears throat> a few months ago, uh, I was with my family, and we were walking through Los Angeles, in a very crowded uh, block, and someone walked up to us and handed us a, a sheet of paper. And, uh, you know, you can find almost anything on the Internet. And it, this was the card, uh, basically. It was a uh, get out of hell free. And it had a much longer uh, description here, but basically it asked several questions. Um, you know, have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you ever, um, you know, it listed a whole bunch of things. And if you have, then you are deserving of hell. But... Of course, the good news is, you know, forgiveness, and here you have a, a get out of hell free card. So anyway, I found this on the internet, but the, the reason I'm talking about forgiveness here in the, in the setting of, of our subject, which is healing, is that um, typically we, we, we make forgiveness the end all, just get forgiven, then that's, that's, that's really the, the ultimate here. If we can just somehow get, uh, get something paid off, get a legal adjustment, then you know, that's, that's really the, the ultimate. I don't think that's the, the ultimate. And in fact, uh, the description that kind of goes along with this is, well, you know, that uh, we just want to be covered. You know, we're rotten to the core. If you were to cut into these apples, if we're making a spiritual application, of course, we're covered by someone else's righteousness, but we are not meant to change. 
or it can be implied that way. We are hopelessly rotten to the core, incapable of transformation. Okay, so it's kind of an outer apple that maybe looks good, but inside uh, rotten to the core. Okay, well, is that, is that a, a correct model of things? Let's go through a little bit of the life of Jesus and talk about healing. Okay, the passage here in Matthew 1. Mary will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Okay, what does Jesus save us from? Okay, he doesn't save us from uh, God, certainly. Of course, he is God in human form, but he saves us from our sins. And the word here for save, sozo, uh, this can, can legitimately be trans, uh, translated as healing. And many times it is in the New Testament. Okay? Jesus came here to, to transform us, to save us from something. Okay? Sin, as we've talked before, is intrinsically destructive. Okay? That is what we need to be saved from. Okay? So the word here, sozo, means salvation. But even in that word, salvation, you, know, you see the word salve in that. What is a salve? It's for healing. Okay? Salvation, is a, we need to think of that in, turn, in a healing uh, model as well, wholeness, restoration, to be delivered, recover, unbroken. Okay, we are a broken people, and this uh, sozo, healing, has to do with bringing things together again, making something, uh, patching up the broken pieces. Okay, so if I could just summarize here, just a few interesting examples of this in the New Testament. Of course, Jesus went about doing a lot of healing. Okay, and one interesting example is the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Remember, she had faith. She reached out and touched his garment. Okay, and the story told about her is that no one could heal her. And I think you can all see here in, in the Greek word, which I won't try to pronounce, but uh, it's a therapeutic. Okay, here we're talking about a physical healing. No one could heal her physical uh, ailment. Okay, but after she'd been healed, in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Okay, and, and the Greek word here, again, is emphasis on being healed of a physical ailment. Okay, but it's, now it's very interesting, Jesus' uh, response to all of this. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Sozo, go in peace. And so we kind of, we move from this physical healing here, and then Jesus here, using the word sozo, uh, I would think would mean more than just a physical healing, not merely medically treated, okay? Transformation, wholeness, unbroken, spiritual healing. I think much more happened to this woman than just healing of her bleeding disorder. Okay, and of course, this woman grew old and she died, right? So what is, what is more important, the physical healing, and not to minimize that, I mean, every day we see patients who are desperate for physical healing. Okay, but ultimately, which one is more important, the physical or the spiritual uh, transformation? So I think uh, the relationship here in this woman, your faith has healed you, or trust. Okay, she put her trust in Jesus, okay, and that had a transforming effect on her life. She was healed, much more than just in a physical sense. Okay, now... Um, so, you know, a familiar verse like this. Let me just give one example here in Ephesians 2.8. For it's by God's grace you have been saved through faith. And again, sozo, legitimately could be transferred, uh, translated as healed. And there's one Greek word for faith, which can be translated believe, trust, or faith. And so, again, the emphasis here on the relationship between putting our trust in God, okay, and, and naturally, it's unavoidable. You put your trust in the real God, 
uh, healing occurs. Not something you have to work on or worry about. It's just something that, that naturally happens. Now, this is a, a quote from uh, an article uh, written by Jonathan Gallagher that I, I just thought was really good. It's about the paralytic man. Okay, remember Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I'll just read uh, what he wrote about this. In Luke 5, a paralytic man is lowered through the roof into Jesus' presence. Jesus does not say, be healed or get up and walk. Instead, he points out the healing significance of salvation by saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. Salvation is the healing of the sin damage. But the Pharisees are incensed and asked, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? True enough. Only God can forgive sins. But as Jesus wanted to point out, their view is one of the need for legal forgiveness in order to receive God's blessings, an exterior kind of work, a ritualized concept of salvation. But Jesus points them back to what salvation really is by saying to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. In the Pharisees' minds, which which was easier, to heal or to forgive sins? Obviously, they could handle Jesus as just another miracle worker who heals, but not as someone who went around forgiving sins. They, the Pharisees, had developed a very meticulous set of rules and regulations for achieving forgiveness. Their idea of salvation was of strict observance to the ceremonies and rituals. So when someone comes around saying he's able to forgive sins, that blows their minds. For salvation as healing is not part of their concept of how God works to restore people to himself. Salvation, they think, has to come through the proper channels. There are rigid requirements to achieve this salvation, and which, if legalistically obeyed, will ensure success. So how can this, quotes, faith healer promise forgiveness of sins? How? Well, because he is God, And because his salvation is healing, not rigid observance of outward requirements, an inherently non-legal process, blasphemy to those who saw the achieving of legal forgiveness as the essential part of salvation, which is what led to Jesus' death. He bucked the system. He blasphemed God. And it was better that one man die for the sake of the people than the whole national system of achieving salvation be destroyed. So it's a good article you can find here um, by Jonathan Gallagher. But uh, let me try to uh, expand on this. And and first of all, we can say that there are forgiven people in the Bible who by by all accounts we would not expect to see in the kingdom uh, necessarily. Um, When we did numbers last year, we talked about this. The people, you know, wandering through the wilderness, just rebelled, 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 rebelled. And God finally here in Numbers 14 said to Moses, how much longer will these people reject me? How much longer will they refuse to trust in me? Remember, that's that's everything, trust. Even though I perform so many miracles among them. Okay, and then we have just this remarkable passage. The Lord said to Moses, I will forgive them as you have asked, but I promise that as surely as I live and as surely as my presence fills the earth, none of these people will live to enter that land. They've seen the dazzling light of my presence and the miracles that I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but they've tried my patience over and over again and have refused to obey me. They will never enter the land which I promised to their ancestors. None of those who have rejected me will ever enter it. So again, were they forgiven? Yes, by God. Okay, so the the forgiveness here, I mean, would not seem to equate with necessarily uh, entering the kingdom. God pours out forgiveness 
Okay, but that is not necessarily uh, all that is required. And of course, uh, you know, our ultimate example of that, Jesus dying on the cross, Father, forgive them. Okay, well, all those people standing at the foot of the cross, were they forgiven? Well, I think they were. I think that's Jesus' meaning, Father, forgive them. Okay, will they, everyone standing there be in heaven? Again, forgiveness, I think we could see as God taking the first step, he pours out forgiveness, love, all kinds of things, that it's meant to stimulate um, something in us. Okay, and of course it did at the cross. I, I just like to uh, consider here that when the captain, what did he know about Jesus? But, you know, when you torture someone to death, you don't expect them to offer forgiveness. And when the captain saw what happened, he honored God. This man was innocent, a good man, an innocent. And all who uh, came around as spectators to watch the show, when they saw what actually happened, were overcome with grief and headed home. Again, not the way you expect someone to respond um, to being tortured to death. So again, the, the forgiveness, it stimulated something. certainly did within the captain. So I think that's the basis for um, Romans 2.4. Okay, I'll read it in a different translation than you're familiar with. But um, the God's Word translation, do you have contempt for God who is very kind to you, puts up with you, deals patiently with you? Don't you realize that it is God's kindness that is trying to lead you to him and change the way you think and act? You know, or in the more familiar translation, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So I think what we see God doing here on the cross and other examples, when he forgives, it's, it's, he's taking the first step. Okay, we imagine it the other way around. We come to God, we beg for forgiveness, then he forgives us, forgives us and so on. But we see God initiating uh, here by pouring out kindness, forgiveness, and then that is, is meant to change us. Okay, so I had a, just a great example here this morning. I was very happy to have this uh, come up here and the patients I was seeing. Uh, this was a, uh, you know, and I think the medical setting has so many parallels with the plan of salvation, plan of healing. But uh, this was a patient who had um, uh, canceled three visits with me. Well, he canceled two and then he was a no-show uh, for the third visit. And the, the policy at the uh, VA hospital is if some, someone cancels, doesn't show up for three visits, then they're taken out of the system. You need to get another referral from their primary doctor. Okay, but he really wanted to be seen, and so he called um, our neurology secretary and said, no, I promise I will show up um, for the, the next visit. Okay, so we put him back on the schedule, and he showed up this morning. Okay, and, you know, came in, I, I think, looking pretty guilty because he knew, you know, he'd kind of blown it three times, and so he right away apologized. Okay, now, if, if we try to make some applications here between a medical model and the, the plan of salvation... No, of course I said, no, that's fine. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Let's talk about your problem. You know, would it make sense for me just to forgive him? And so, okay, now go home. I forgive you. Okay, and he goes home and tells his wife, you know, well, what happened? Well, he forgave me, you know. Uh, doesn't, uh, isn't there much more that needs to happen than that? Let's talk about your problem. What can we do um, to make things better? Okay, and so I think forgiveness, as, as a well-known uh, individual here at Loma Linda has said for years, God is forgiveness personified. There's no limitation on God's forgiveness. He is the very personification of forgiveness. But the question is now, uh, is God capable of uh, transformation for those who trust him? So let's come back to this verse here in Matthew. And we said that something happened in these people in Matthew 13. Okay, they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't see. God couldn't heal them. Their minds would not understand. Okay, what is necessary? What is it that actually brings about um, healing and transformation? Well, 2 Corinthians 3 and several other verses suggest that it is 
by beholding that we become changed, which would suggest that what we're beholding, what we're looking at is very important. Okay, so this verse, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. Again, as we've said, glory, that means much more than a physical brightness or splendor. Okay, this refers to the, the person of God, God's character. It's very significant here. By beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. So notice, what, what is it that brings about transformation? It's what we're looking at. By beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory uh, to another. So therefore, our, our picture of God becomes uh, really central to this. Okay? What are we looking at when we see God? Okay, this, it's a natural process. You, we become like the God we love, worship, and admire. Lots of verses like this. 1 John 3, 2. We know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. Notice the relationship there between seeing God as he really is and being like him. Yeah, it's just, you know, it works that way. The, the more focused and clear our picture of God is, it's an unavoidable natural consequence that we tend to become like the God we love, worship, and admire. Ephesians 3.19. Yes, may you come to know his love, although it can never be fully known. Okay, what happens if we come to know his love? And so be completely filled with the very nature, could we say, with the very character of God. Okay, as we come to know God, we become like him. Okay, and so Jesus' parting words. Remember, you just gave us one command. Just do one thing. Now I give you a new command. Of course, it's not a new command. It's just that no one's really done it before. Okay, I give you a new commandment. Love one another. Okay, how do we know what it is to love one another? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Okay, the, the desire here, the, the reason that's important for, in terms of healing, it's not for, for selfish reasons. Okay, and we're not talking about perfectionism here. But the reason that transformation is important is, I mean, how is the message ever going to take off? How are people ever going to find out about God unless they see um, Christ-like love in us? Okay, so it is, it's really the only vehicle okay, for the, the message to, to be spread. Okay, as we see the love that God has for us, we reflect that kind of love to others. And in the early church, you know, in Acts, it, it took off like fire. And you read the description of the way those people were living. They really uh, were a reflection of God. Now, if I could just make a, a final point here, the unpardonable sin. I would like to call this the unhealable sin. Okay, I think uh, this ties in exactly with what we're talking about. Here in Matthew 12, we have a description of the sin against the Holy Spirit. This always scared me as a child. Okay, some people brought Jesus a man who was blind and could not talk because he had a demon. Jesus healed the man so that he was able to talk and see. And the crowds were all amazed at what Jesus had done. Could he be the son of David, they asked. But when the Pharisees heard this, they replied, he drives out demons only because their ruler, Beelzebul, or Beelzebub, uh, gives him power to do so. So notice, what the Pharisees see Jesus going about, doing things, healing people. Remember, they didn't like that he healed lepers because in their vision of things, you know, if you were a leper, if you were poor, if you were blind, then by definition that meant you were cursed by God. Okay, that's just the way it worked. If you're rich, by definition you're blessed by God. Okay, so here Jesus is going about healing people that are suffering. Okay, this was very repulsive to them. And so, you know, just the fact they could look at Jesus and claim that he is of a demonic agency, okay, that's the setting for what happens next. 
Jesus would say, no, it is not Beelzebul, but God's spirit who gives me the power to drive out demons, which proves that the kingdom of God has already come to you. I tell you, people can be forgiven any sin and any evil thing they say, but whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Okay, and I wish now we had time to go forward to John, but uh, again and again and again, what's the function of the Holy Spirit in John? It's bringing the truth about God, bringing the truth about God. Okay, the Holy Spirit is what brings the truth about God to our, to our minds. So whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who says something against the Son of Man can be forgiven. But whoever says something against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven now or ever. I think the meaning here is they looked at God in human form and said, that's satanic. And how do you heal that? That's really unhealable. It's not that God can't do something in a mechanistic or a legal framework. It's just, you know, there's only scar tissue left. I can't heal that. Okay, so most important of all, I mean, God who came and said, I am gentle and humble, Jesus Christ. Okay, if we look at those features of God in Jesus and actually see a demonic agency to that, um, then I think that's, that's the unpardonable or the unhealable um, sin. So again, the, the healing uh, is important uh, for spreading the message about God throughout the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, it's, it's obvious that our world is in great need of healing, physical healing, yes, but also spiritual healing that comes from seeing you in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, as physicians, as student physicians, please enable us to be conduits of both physical and spiritual healing. Amen.